Good morning. Uh, it's good to see all of my Idlewild Bible Church family. Uh, good to see we're, we're together and we're united. And, you know, uh, like, like uh, Wayne said, um, you know, we're, we're in challenging times right now where however it came about, we all have different ideas on, on different issues and different things. And, you know, the enemy's strategy is to divide and conquer. It's a pretty good strategy. Um, and it works, but we're not going to let it work, are we? Um, we are going to remain united. We're going to love one another regardless of how we agree or don't agree on different things. And we're going to do our best to respect one another and the, um, you know, just how we respond to the different things. You know, we're not all going to respond the same way, but we're going to respect the way the others respond um, because that's, that's what Christ has called us to is unity. And so, uh, thank you for sticking with us. And I, I want to also assure you that our elder team has worked feverishly and tirelessly to try to make sure that we provide an environment that everyone can feel uh, welcome and uh, be able to worship wherever they, they land on that uh, kind of spectrum of concern. So, um, thank you. Uh, we are going into Jonah, so if you turn to Jonah 1, I, uh, as you turn there, I also want to mention that if you are in my uh, life group, we're, gonna, we're doing like a church history life group. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to look at uh, a lot of the developments that have taken place. I mean, we didn't just show up out of nowhere and say, oh, there's this New Testament. We should start a religion. Uh, this, this has been uh, going on since, uh, since it was written uh, 2,000 years ago, and... Um, so we're going to learn about how that works. If you are in that group, um, I have the books in my study over there. So you can see me after, um, after church and, and, and I can get those to you. Or you can just grab them tomorrow at the, at the first study. But if you want to read ahead, certainly um, you're welcome to do that. Just grab me. Jonah chapter 1. We've got a lot to cover in Jonah. Jonah's a, Jonah's a lot bigger book than it looks on the surface. Uh, so, as a wise man once said, we're going to need a bigger boat. Uh, Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And our Heavenly Father, as we, as we begin this new series in the book of Jonah this morning, we ask that you would reveal your great mercy to us and that you would also reveal to us our desperate, our desperate need for you and for your mercy. Help us, God, to learn, to trust and obey, to follow you. Give us ears to hear what you have to say this morning. And God, make our minds to understand and to love your good character. God, we surrender our hearts and our minds and our attention to you as we open up your scriptures this morning to learn from you and to know you more. We give this time over to you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Now we're starting this new series in Jonah, and the first thing that we need to do is set the stage by looking at context. Again, this didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened in a real time in a real place. So we're going to introduce the book by looking at some of that historical, geographical, and literary context. With Christians and Jewish people, the book of Jonah has always been read as, historic, as a historical narrative until relatively recently. So we have to ask ourselves if we stand with what the church has always believed throughout time with orthodoxy or whether we dismiss it as something other than a historical account. There are a few options that are given as far as the genre of Noah. Now, genre is important, just like Genre is important in music. Genre is important in uh, literature. You certainly would not play Alice Cooper uh, on a hip-hop station 
Those are two different genres of music, and the people who like hip-hop probably would not enjoy shock rock. Um, you know, so there are all kinds of genres, right? We have jazz and jazz fusion and hip-hop and rap and R&B, and then we have rock, golden oldies, rock and roll. Uh, we've got uh, glamour rock. Any big glamour rock fans out here? Josh, no striper for you? Okay. No, uh, we have, uh, you know, we have punk rock. That's the good stuff. Um, so those are genres. Jonah, uh, in, in the Bible, we have different genres of literature. Jonah, there is now, surprisingly, um, not surprisingly, let's say, uh, question of genre. So we're not going to go into a lot of detail on that, but I want to address them so that we can be informed enough to hold our position by more than just simply blind faith. Now, some would argue that Jonah is what's called Midrash. Midrash would be a commentary on ancient scripture that would bring it into a particular context. The argument would be that this is commentary on 2 Kings 14.25, where we see Jonah showing up in his historical context, and, and where Jonah's uh, mentioned, or um, in some of the other prophetic works, now, we would reject that for a number of reasons, the first being that it doesn't make sense to invent a fantastic and unrealistic story by drawing from something written earlier without making that unquestionably clear. Uh, like, to define Jonah as Midrash would be pure, unadulterated speculation. It just wouldn't be, what are you commenting on with Jonah? Like, what are you responding to with this book, and it, it doesn't make sense. The next one, uh, other people consider Jonah to be an allegory. Now, that is more like some of the parables that Jesus told, like, um, uh, or some like Aesop's fables, and you know, that, that that's a work of fiction in which each component of the story represents something real. So, like, um, you have the, the, the dog and the bone of Aesop's fable, right, representing. Um, this, you know, this greed that this dog has. Um, they would argue that ver the various features of the book represent different things in the life of Israel. We reject that for a number of reasons. Allegories are typically very short and very obvious. An audience would have to know that it's an allegory for it to make any allegorical sense. Here we are, maybe 26 to 2,800 years later, and we're just now picking up on it? That Oh, uh, that's an allegory. I don't think so. Um, you also wouldn't make God the main character in an allegory about God. Like you wouldn't say, well, in this fable, the dog represents the dog and the bone represents the bone. Like that, it makes zero sense whatsoever. So you wouldn't do that. Um, the other one is didactic fiction. Now that's, that's, uh, would be another form of a parabolic interpretation. In that case, it would be a longer fictional story that paints one main point. So the tortoise and the hare, you know, slow and steady reads the race. It's a, it's a story, and slow and steady means wins the race. So that would be didactic fiction. In this case, it would, um, would they say, address the idea that... Um, that the Jewish people hold that only pe only the only people that God was concerned with after the exile were the Jews, and what it would be teaching is that God calls out every nation for repentance. Okay, so we can agree that God's grace does not discriminate based on ethnicity. So we would also though reject that this is didactic fiction for a few reasons. Jonah is a complex book with a number of themes, and also the other reason is that the primary reason. Uh, for calling Jonah fiction is because of its miraculous components. All of those positions are rooted in the belief that the idea that Jonah survived being swallowed by a sea creature, some sort of sea creature for three days, and that the entire city or region of Nineveh had repented, that those things are so outlandish that it didn't happen because it couldn't have happened. In other words, miracles don't happen because miracles can't happen. Now, you could stand on that. You could stick to the idea that there's a scientific explanation for everything, even if we haven't figured it out yet. 
But if you're going to be consistent with that view, you can't single out Jonah as fiction while allowing for other writings to be historical, say, for example, the Gospels. Douglas Stewart point, puts it this way, Miraculous events are chronicled in various places throughout the Bible. One can reject these on the basis of a systematic anti-supernaturalist bias, but one cannot single out Jonah in this regard. The argument, miracles can't happen, therefore they don't, is a subjective, not an objective basis for discounting the factuality of the miracle narratives of Jonah. So let's look at a few arguments regarding a historical reading of Jonah. The first argument is that there are an improbable number of miracles. Okay, what's a probable number of miracles? Isn't that the point of a miracle? Like, isn't the very definition of a miracle something that's not probable? Like, probably impossible at times? Like, one miracle is improbable. <laughs> okay, so that's done. <laughs> the next one is the literary artistry of Jonah, including hyperbole and wordplay, indicates a work of fiction. So those things are very common in parables. But that's like saying the color red indicates a Chevy Camaro. Okay, a lot of Chevy Camaros are red. That's very true of Chevy Camaros. But just because a car's red doesn't make it a Camaro. I've had some horrible red cars. I'd much rather have had a Camaro for, you know. Um, also, where is it in the rule book that you cannot creatively and artistically describe an actual event? Like, I know your high school history textbooks were boring, but that's because they were written by terrible authors. Not because they were true. It doesn't have to be boring to be true, right? Now, perhaps Jonah was a great communicator. Imagine that. And, and, and maybe he shined when he wrote this autobiographical account. Is it really that difficult to believe that a prophet would be a gifted poetic speaker? The point is, the context is historical. It takes place in a real geographical historical place. It's not once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away. This is a real historical setting. It's always been read as a historical account. We can't step out of orthodoxy without some empirical data to the contrary, some proof otherwise. A line of reasoning is never enough to abandon orthodoxy. Now, admittedly, we have no evidence outside of Jonah's uh, or rather, we have no outside evidence of Jonah's magical fish ride, or for the conversion of Nineveh. But Jesus accepted it as true. I find that pretty convincing. That's a big deal. Matthew 12. This is what Jesus says. Matthew 12. Verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. With that, he's talking about himself. Now, so we've established that Jonah is not midrash. It is not allegory. It is not didactic fiction. You don't have to remember those terms, by the way. They're not important. But it is a true historical narrative. We have to determine how we're to read it, however. That th there's a certain assumptions that are built into the book. Um, and, and they would have been obvious to the earliest readers but we, because we're so far removed, need to dig a little to get to that. So we're, we're going to see that throughout the series. But the first question is over who the subject is and what we learn about the subject. Now you look at the title and you think the subject is Jonah. It's not. The subject is not Jonah. Jonah is the object. The subject is God. Jonah is the object of God's working. The book is about God. Okay? In fact, this is really important to remember. The book of Jonah is about God. Uh, Jonah responded to God, not the other way around. 
In fact, we have one subject, but we actually have three primary personal objects. Jonah's one of them, but we also have the sailors. They're the object of God's working. We have the people of Nineveh, the object of God's working. And all three objects are recipients of God's mercy. And I love that. It's a book about God, and the primary characteristic of God in the book of Jonah is his mercy. Man, in that vein, it's usually, usually, or rather, it's universally agreed upon that the primary characteristic expressed about the subject God is his love for all people. But we got to be careful about how we understand that. There's an argument about whether, or, or at least the level of love that God has towards each individual person. But that's not what this is discussing. So the, the argument exists, and we can have that discussion, but that's not what this is. Um, that's somewhere else. Um, there's some misunderstanding sometimes, but in theological terms, when we use all people, we're talking about all groups of people, not individuals. And this is important because it says something about God's nature here um, that's, that's beyond just loving people. We'll get to that in a second. One example here, though, is Israel. Israel is God's chosen people or his chosen nation. But it's the collection of people that he loves. Only those who know him are actually justified, right? So in Romans 9, verses 6 and 7, in Romans 9, it says, verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And then we as Gentiles, we as Gentiles are grafted in, but not all Gentiles are elect or saved. Not all Gentiles have repented and placed their trust in Christ. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the point of this isn't about God's love for individuals. That's a different discussion. It's about his indiscriminate love that is not predicated on race, ethnicity, location, vocation, gender, right? It's about the fact that his love does not discriminate. Galatians 3 Verses 27 to 29. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. So again, not a discussion about his interaction with individuals. It's about his indiscriminate love. Okay, it's just clarifying the language here and the theme of Jonah that what, and this is actually the theme as we look at Jonah later on, addressing that, we're going to see, um, we're going to see that Jonah's issue was God's love towards people that were not his own. Now we're going to, are, are we rather, are we going to see every individual from Nineveh at the time that Jonah preached when we get to heaven? Are they all going to be there? I don't know. I don't know, and I don't need to know, but what I know is that we're going to see Nineveh there. I know we're going to see the Ninevites, right, because they repented. Could be every single breathing being, or it could be the majority, but we'll see Nineveh because God does not discriminate. As far as the introduction to Jonah, there's one other uh, presupposition that we have to address to avoid, in order that we can avoid something as we spend the next maybe approximately three months in Jonah, we must avoid what's called moralism because it's not a book about the human characters. God, Yahweh, is the subject. The people are the objects. It's a story about God's faithful character towards the sailors, towards the Ninevites, and towards Jonah despite the fact that Jonah was unfaithful. God still poured his mercy upon him. 
We learn how to respond, or, or rather we can learn how to respond to God by examining the people that are mentioned in Jonah. We can also learn something about human behavior. These are good things to learn from Jonah. But we have to be careful that we don't see the Bible or our Christian faith as being primarily about behavior modification. This isn't a, a rehab. It's not a, a self-help group. This is about God's work, not Hours. If we learn about God's character and we trust Him as a result, our behavior will follow. And that's because we always act according to what we believe, right? So we looked at so 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 we know how to look at Jonah a little bit here. We're going to continue to learn that, but now we're going to look at the text itself in these first few verses. And as we do, we need to realize that that we have this historical setting. But Jonah's left out a lot of historical details. And that's because he's more interested in the important message that he's trying to convey than giving a detailed history. So Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and the, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, when we think of Jonah, we immediately think of the great fish or the whale, right? It's called a whale of a tail or a big fish story, right? But we need to realize that Jonah is not about Jonah. It's also not about the fish. We don't want to miss the point, right? Frank Page said this, One needs to realize that the fish is a relatively minor part of the story mentioned in only three verses. It's actually a little piece of the story. It's so outlandish that that's what we base all our children's stories on, but it's not about the fish. We don't want to miss the blessings contained in Jonah by spending all our time dealing with some of the things that are more difficult for us to understand. I think I've given sufficient reason to trust Jonah, and we're going to look at the text and not the problems here and out. We'll see some of the problems. We'll address some of those. But we're going to look at the text. We're going to look at what Jonah is trying to communicate to us. Now, our passage begins by setting the context, but really it's one word that begins this narrative. And in English, we've kind of mixed the words around a little bit to make it make more sense to us. But, but the way it read, would read, um, if, it, if it were to go in word order, would be something like, came the word of Yahweh to Jonah. It starts with came. And that's, I think, important because that word came speaks of existence. It's, it's to come to pass or to fall upon. It's, it's existence. We're not told about the mechanics of how God revealed his word to Jonah. We're just told that it fell upon him. It existed. His word existed, right? And the artistry is evident because the proper name of Yahweh is very much related to that term and rooted in that idea of existence or life. He who brings to pass, or he who causes to fall. So the word existed, it's caused by God. God causes his word to come to Jonah. Jonah is from the northern kingdom near Nazareth. I'm not sure where he is at this point in time. He could be anywhere in the Israel kind of area. But um, again, we don't know the details also about what he's to say. We just have the clear instructions um, that he is to prophesy against Nineveh, which is in Assyria, which is uh, near modern-day Mosul, Iraq. Or in the, Assyria was the big area. Nineveh near, is near what, where modern-day Mosul, Iraq, which is, if you can see that big blue dot up there, little blue dot up there, that's where Nineveh would be. Joppa, where he sailed from, is right down there. It's called uh, Jaffa today. Um, so it could have been, he could have come from anywhere around there and gone do, down to Joppa, but that was where he was supposed to go. Not a real far distance. Um, it would take about, you know, less, I think less than a week to walk there, um, going slow, taking your time. Uh, now, Nineveh was probably founded by a guy by the name of Nimrod, the son of Cush, who was a mighty warrior, mighty hunter. Uh, that could even refer to him being a, a hunter of men, as we read about him in Genesis chapter 10. We're not going to go there, but you can read Genesis 10 later if you want to read more about Nimrod. Um, and make sure you spell it right when you name your next child Nimrod. That would be fun. 
So the very founding of the city paints the culture uh, and history of the city with this, vi it's this violent, depraved place even 1,400 years later when Jonah shows up. It's called a great or infamous city. Have you ever seen the Three Amigos? Okay, with Steve Martin, Chevy Chase, Martin Short. They get a telegram about this, this infamous El Guapo. And Steve Martin asks, what's infamous? And Martin Short replies, infamous? Why, that's when you're more than famous. It's a great movie. So Nineveh is this city that is more than famous for doing things like making furniture out of the people that they conquered. Like, can you imagine? Like, nice couch, Earl. <laughs> oh, thanks. It used to be Bob. <laughs> oh, Bob gave it to you? Uh, sure, you could say that. <laughs> right? That's what they were. Nineveh was an Assyrian city, and the Assyrians were not nice people. They would lead their prisoners across the desert with hooks and fetters. Now, what that is, the fetters are like these cuff things that bind your feet and your hands together. And the hooks that they would use would be, there's a couple of different methods they would use. Have you ever seen a cow with the ring in its nose? They would do that to people and then lead them that way with a leash, right? Or, or they would hook your lip like a fish or even through your jaw, all the way down through your jaw, and then lead you across the desert to where they were imprisoning you. So, not nice guys. Here's another one. They would, they would do things like poke, poke out your eyes too. So that's, that's good fun. Um, and God tells Jonah he's going to go over there and be a fire and brimstone preacher. Now, it would make perfect sense to call out against Nineveh because they were bad people. And not bad people like you and I that are totally depraved and need God's mercy, but they were bad, 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 bad people. They were really, really bad people. They were uber bad, right? The, the Assyrians were known for their excessive cruelty, especially Nineveh, which was the Assyrian capital for some time. And God gives Jonah a reason for calling out against them he says, for their evil has come up before me. And this would make sense to a Hebrew. Jonah, being Hebrew, would immediately identify with that statement. This is what Jay Sklar said. He said, Israelites hearing this description may well have thought of Sodom and Gomorrah, whose deeds were so evil that they attracted the Lord's special attention as well, and ultimately his justice. And what did Jonah want? Justice. Because... His own people were drugged by those same means across the desert by the Assyrians. Now, we have a summary here. We don't know exactly what Jonah's to preach, but he, what we do know is that he didn't want to do it. I know I wouldn't want to do it. Like, that would be like one of us being told to go out right now to Afghanistan and preach against the Taliban. Any volunteers? No? Like, hey, murderous, evil, monstrous, infamous Taliban... You should repent so God doesn't smite you. Still no volunteers? Nobody? Going once? Going? No? Or maybe it would be like going into the bar to tell some hell's angels that they should become FBI informants. Or maybe it would be like going to Boston to tell the New England Patriots that they should stop cheating. These are things, take your pick. It's the opposite of what's going to happen. Right? So Jonah responds to what God tells him to do by heading the exact opposite direction. Now, I tried this thing. It works right here, but not up here. We, we're going to get to a thing here. Let's, let's read Jonah 1.3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. I don't know why they had to put that word in there so many times away from the presence of the Lord. Now, Nineveh is east through the desert, so I don't have this, but she's going to show you there, maybe east over here. I, ooh, I can see it. You see that? Right over there, that's, that's Nineveh. Down here, by the yellow thing there, that's Joppa. And to get to uh, Tarshish, you would have to come here by Crete. There's Crete, right? Right in the... Right there in the, the Crete, and Greece is right there. Crete was where all the pirates are at. Remember the pirates? Uh, right? 
So we're, we're, we're kind of different kind of pirate this time because they're merchants. And then we go by Italy over there that's kicking, uh, th that's kicking Sicily, which is the deflated football courtesy of Tom Brady. And then we, have, we go around the north end of Africa here and all the way up, and you get over there to um, Spain, which is where we believe Tarshish was. Now, some have actually spe speculated that the Tarshish may have been even farther. Um, that was as far as you would know the world would go, right? That's as, as far as you could sail. Some uh, suggest maybe the ships and sailors would have headed down into, like, West Africa, or maybe were even sophisticated enough to get across the Atlantic Ocean. I find that one a little far-fetched. Um, Africa is kind of likely. Look at First Kings 10. First Kings 10. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea uh, with the fleet of Haram. Every, once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. So that would make sense if, if it was further down uh, towards Africa. Historically, though, we generally believe that, that Tarshish was in one of those two locations in Spain. Now, we... We act according to what we believe, and somehow Jonah believed that he could flee the presence of God. I heard one pastor say this. Even God cannot override your unbelief. Want to bet? <laughs> Read Jonah nice and slow. <laughs> Jonah believed that he could outrun God. And God actually outran him and literally turned him around. What's the word repent mean? To turn around? God repented Jonah. Like, God turned him around. He did the work, right? And, and really, like, like, like we mentioned, it may not have even been that Jonah was as afraid of the Ninevites as much as he hated them. Go over to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. Making you flip those pages fast, right? Jonah 4, verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah didn't like this part. Jonah didn't want God to be merciful. Not to Nineveh. So, 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 so believing somehow he would succeed, he fled west. You know, the interesting thing is turning from God's presence is actually the exact opposite of the job description of a prophet. <laughs> so he did the opposite of his job, went the opposite of his direction of his calling. Uh, it was just a big game of opposites for Jonah. In fact, how did, how did God reveal himself to Jonah? Through his word, right? Through his word. So Jonah's fleeing God by running from God's word. Huh, I don't know anybody like that. Isn't it interesting that we're now seeing, seeming to go through this kind of second, like, neo-enlightenment period where Christians are redefining the meaning of Scripture because it goes against their perceived intellect? Well, let's see. The first nine chapters of Genesis must be allegorical because they don't line up with our long-held scientific theories. Well, Jonah must be fake. Too many miracles. Well, maybe the Bible's just speaking culturally when it gives instructions about gender. Well, maybe homosexuality means something different in the Bible. Well, maybe the Bible isn't as infallible as we once thought. I've heard this one, this next one, from literally from Christian seminary professors. Maybe God isn't as omniscient as we once thought. Let me quote a pretty known, pretty well-known Bible scholar slash heretic. Terence Freytheme, God learns from what the human being actually does with the tax that he has been divinely assigned. What? <laughs> this is what he also said, talking about sin. God bears some responsibility for setting up creation in such a way that it could go wrong and have such devastating effects. What? Like, the most surprising thing is he wasn't struck by lightning before the book was published. Like, that's heresy, you guys. Like, we don't talk about a lot of heresy because it's, it's a bad word. We don't want to offend people. But that's heresy, 
Okay? Now, the most surprising thing is, uh, see, I did this in first service, and that was my practice service, and now I'm doing it again. My goodness. Next point. Jonah is here resisting the word of Yahweh. And I think we might consider what happened to Jonah before we undo the word of God in our lives. Because God is present in his word. See, what God demands of us or the, the truth that he has given us, these are often very unpleasant things. They often go against our cultural ethics. And they often go against the things that we're willing to accept. Hebrews 4, Hebrews 4 verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. The Assyrians had done horrible things to the Hebrews. It's no wonder that no Hebrew would desire that God have mercy on Nineveh. In fact, Jonah's response wasn't even just a knee-jerk reaction. He likely had to go and sell his home and everything he had before he could pay the fare to flee way far away. I, I keep looking there like this, the map's going to come back up. But, to, but it's interesting that, that Jonah would have no doubt uh, known Psalm 139 very well. We're going to read that in a second. Turn to Psalm 139. But see, even if for just a moment he didn't believe it, Let's read that. Psalm 139, the first 12 verses, starting in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Verse 4. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? Verse 8. If I send to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness shall cover me, and the light about me shall be night. Even darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. So Jonah goes down to Joppa, now known as Jaffa, which is in modern day Tel Aviv, Israel, to take a ship away from God's word. The very thing that Jonah feared is the very thing that God had predetermined he was going to do. And Nineveh responded immediately. Unlike Israel, who oftentimes resisted God for generations. The early church father Jerome said, Jonah was sent to the Gentiles in condemnation of Israel because when Nineveh repents, Israel persevered in their wickedness. See, Jonah was a proud, patriotic Hebrew. Seeing a Gentile nation become faithful in light of the unfaithfulness of his own people is the last thing he wanted to see. So he responded by being unfaithful. Now I want to close by going back to one of the objections that we saw in our introduction. Some have argued the improbability of the entire population of Nineveh actually repenting of their abject depravity and wickedness of their society. But they did. Interestingly enough, Nineveh was dealing with cultural issues at that moment. They were, they were dealing with political turmoil. They were dealing with a threatening level of international instability at the time that Jonah shows up. They were ripe for the hope 
of God's mercy. I wonder if our society is. See, because guess what? Like Nineveh, we're also dealing with some pretty severe cultural issues, aren't we? And most of us just got something in the mail this last week that proves that we are dealing with political turmoil, right? The ballot, did everybody get the ballot, right? And guess what? Have you watched the news? Is there a threatening level of international instability around us? I wonder if our society is as ripe for the hope of God's mercy as Nineveh was. And I wonder who of us would answer the call to preach repentance to our society and to make disciples of all the nations. In fact, this is what Jesus said to the Christians right before he ascended into heaven. In Matthew 28, 18 through, 7, through 20. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority, Jesus says, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He was with Jonah always. He is with us always. You see, there's a mission field right outside those doors, aren't there? We have a sign up there reminding us of that. In fact, there's another prophet that heard the call of God. Turn with me to Isaiah. Let's listen to his testimony about the calling of God. This is what he says. In the year that King Uzziah died, of Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold struck at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. We're about to receive the Lord's Supper please keep in mind that this is a sacred meal that we as believers share in remembrance of what Jesus did for us at the cross. God has shown mercy by placing the weight of our sin on His only begotten Son, Jesus, and assigning His glorious perfection to us. And it came at a brutal cost. So please be sure that you partake with gladness and repentance. Instead of being like Jonah, fleeing from God's holy word, will you be like Isaiah? Nineveh repented. So can Idlewild. So can California. So can America. Will this cup Touch your lips as the coal touched Isaiah's. And will you then hear the precious words? Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And will you respond to the call of God? Whatever the cost may be to you. Here am I, Lord. Send me. Oh, holy God. Let us be not like Jonah fleeing from your mission, fleeing from your word, fleeing from your presence. Make us more like Isaiah, 
willing to go at whatever cost to it may come, to us it may come in humility causing us the strength and fortitude to love those who we cannot love on our own to preach the gospel and to make disciples wherever we go god let our lives be devoted to your mission not our comfort. Help us run toward you, even when that causes great fear, confusion, or discomfort to us. Oh, holy God, fill us with your spirit that there would never be any confusion over who we belong to. God, let us not fear or be ashamed of belonging to the Most High God but cause us to wear that with humble submissiveness and gratefulness. God, speak to us now as we prepare to receive this bread and this cup. You have given mercy that we may be people of mercy. And it's grace and mercy by which the blood of Jesus' broken body flowed down that painful, rugged, glorious cross. Lord, humble us as we prepare to receive this holy meal. In the name of our Savior, Jesus. Are you hurting and broken with thee? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ Leave behind your regrets and mistakes Come today, there's no reason to wait Jesus is calling Bring your sorrows and trade them for joy From the ashes a new life was born Jesus is calling Oh, come to the altar The Father's arms are open wide Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ Forgiveness was bought with The precious blood Oh, what a Savior Isn't He wonderful? Sing hallelujah Christ is risen Father's arms are open wide Forgiveness was bought with The precious blood of Jesus Christ Oh, come to the altar The Father's arms are open wide Forgiveness was bought with the precious 
down there the bread's at the bottom lift the cover off of there and you'll find your bread the apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me. We partake. And be careful when you're opening this. It's grape juice, it'll stain. We want to be stained by the blood of Jesus, not grape juice. Just carefully pull that off. Paul continues, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He continues, for often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And God, we proclaim your death. We proclaim the death of Jesus. And we say, come, Lord Jesus. We long to be in your holy presence and to serve with humility and gratitude on your terms in your kingdom forever. God, we give ourselves over to you as we enter this week. We enter our mission field. Let us hear your word, your call, and let us obey. And let us do this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.